0: Welcome to week one of a series we're starting called Resistible Religion, where Christianity went or has gone wrong. Um, And so over the next few weeks, what we're going to talk about is, um, you know, present and and past, some areas in which the church, Christianity in general, hasn't done too well, where we've gotten off base, where we've kind of messed up. And I know what you're thinking. Wow, Taylor, that feels like you'd need more than three weeks to cover All of that ground, I agree. We cannot cover it all, so I'm just going to cover a couple of points. And don't you worry; we will bring this topic back up and back up. Uh, We'll talk about why here in a little bit. Um, But we do want to remind ourselves about maybe some times and seasons in which Christianity, especially the Christians that make up Christianity, can get a little off base. And so, addressing some of of those big things, and uh, and then. uh, We'll have to just come back to all the rest another time, all right? So, uh, I want to begin by telling you a little bit of an experience I had um, when I was uh, going to college. At least, this was my college experience. I was at, um, you know, really one of the best colleges in the uh, state of Iowa. I I was at Iowa State University and, uh, hey, listen, if you want a microphone, you can become a pastor too. Okay. (laughs) All right. Anyways. Um, so while I was at that aforementioned school, um, you know, by the way, I go to more Hawkeye stuff these days than I go to Iowa state stuff. So just don't, I know, just don't let it go to your heads. Okay. We'll talk about that here in a second too. Anyways. Okay. So going to college, um, I don't know if it was just kind of like becoming a craze or just it was the season in which I recognized what was happening among college students, Um, but people were starting to go really crazy about Starbucks, like, and coffee, and probably had to do with college and, you know, staying up late and all that kind of stuff, but like, it was so new to me, and maybe because I grew up in a part of Iowa where there wasn't a Starbucks, I don't know at the time, Uh, but I would um, hear nonstop about what people drank, and then um, I would see people, especially the ladies, walking around with, and if the ladies were doing something and walking around with their Starbucks cups, you know, as, as college guys, were sitting there like, well, we have to do what they're doing, or that must be where the ladies go, and so we're trying to pay attention, and so I would go with others to Starbucks, and I was not a coffee person at that time. And I, my, I would just listen to the people order their Starbucks coffee, and I, it took my breath away, okay? Like, I, I, don't even, I didn't even know how to process what a venti, caramel latte, blonde roast, soy, extra shot, whip and drizzle on top even meant. I remember there, one of my first times in a Starbucks, somebody said that, and I'm looking up at the menu like, I swear, I do not see that up there. Like, how did you get to what you just said based on what's up there? The only thing I saw up there was maybe a latte or maybe a vanilla latte. I don't even think it says vanilla up on a Starbucks menu. It just says latte, right? And um, so then they give that whole big spiel. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what just happened. And then they ring it up, and it's like, you know, it's like seven seventy-five, And I'm like, what is in this drink? Is it like magic? You know, what? <laughs> What in the world could be in this cup that is $7.75? I mean, that's the price you pay for a beverage at a football game. Obviously, you know, at an Iowa State game because we wouldn't be at an Iowa game. But see what I did there? Okay. But, you know, I mean, that's the price you pay when, you know, you're really having to pay for it kind of thing. And, and then the, the, the volume of people that were there and constantly ordering one right after the other— And then when you saw people with their Starbucks cup, there was something different about them. Did you ever notice that? When somebody's walking around, especially in the early days of Starbucks with their their green logoed Starbucks cup, you know, there's like a little bit of swagger in their step, a little smirk on their face, like, look at what I have in my hand, and I'm going to put it on my desk for all the world to see. Right? It's kind of like that video, right? You walk around and you're feeling really good about this thing, this statement, you know, that, that you got your Starbucks. I felt in this situation like an outsider. And maybe you still feel like an outsider because you still don't even understand the whole Starbucks thing, okay? You know what I'm feeling. And it doesn't really have to do with Starbucks. I mean, it could be really anything in life when you felt or have felt like an outsider, Right? When, when you are the um, one, you know, um, the, the not coffee person in the group, you know, trying to make it work at a coffee shop, um, you, you're the one that's not comfortable paying $7.75 for a beverage, you're the outsider. Or a situation, you know, when um, in, in church where you have questions and you feel skeptical about something and everybody else seemed so sure of their faith or, um, at a work thing or maybe a new event or conference or something, and, and you walked in and, and you were kind of the lower one on the totem pole, and you knew that everybody was kind of looking at you with a bit of a judgmental gaze, right, trying to put you in a place in their hierarchy of, of people, you felt that, you knew that at work, or maybe it was an athletic thing. It's a lot easier in uh, athletics to do that because you know, it's easier to rate people on their skill set. Um, or maybe in an educational environment, a classroom or something, You know, you felt that when everybody else gets done with their test way before you and you're like the last one trying to just make something up so you don't feel like the last one because that makes you feel like the outsider. I mean, where in your life right now, I'm sure there's more than one, where you feel like a bit of the different person. You are the outsider. And then what's interesting is over a period of time, things can change, right? Over a period of time, the world looks different, people move around, all that kind of stuff. So for me and my relationship with Starbucks, you know, 10 years go by and thousands of dollars. And my friends, I am now on the inside, Okay, I now have the Venti, Venti Honey Almond Flat White with, oh, that's unfortunate. It's blonde espresso. I thought it was ristetto or something espresso and only three pumps of honey blend. And you're like, Taylor, what even is that? I know. I wasn't sure, but it looked fancy, so I ordered it. Couldn't tell you really the difference, but don't worry, y'all. I got the logo. And that's the most important thing, right? And so I got the logo. And now I'm not an outsider anymore. I'm an insider, you know? I don't totally grasp everything that's happening, but that's okay. Because you and I both know, because I have the cup, I have made it. And now that you're an insider, what happens? You start to have a sense of pride about yourself. That you are at the very least equal to everyone around you, if not a little bit better than everyone else. So think about your life in that area, you know. There's the moments when you feel like the outsider, but think about the space or two where you kind of you kind of feel pretty special about yourself. You know, maybe it's in your friend group, maybe it's in your family, you know, they have their problems, but we're better than them. We are on the inside and they are on the outside and you talk yourself up because well, you're an insider. Today, that's what I want to talk about. We need to talk about that. We need to talk about that as Christians. Because this whole thing right here is one of the main reasons people aren't coming to church anymore. This is one of the main reasons people avoid faith and God and Jesus altogether is this. And you're like, yeah, no, I think it's actually like a disagreement on faith and theology and all that stuff. No, it, it isn't, in fact. The Christian church, and honestly religion in general, has struggled with this insider-outsider issue for thousands of years. But what's unfortunate is in the church, the church should be one of those religions that is the opposite of that. The church should be known for something completely different. But unfortunately, the church has become resistible to the rest of the world because we have this insider-outsider thing going on. And it's really difficult. Maybe you experienced it growing up, but it's been really difficult to see it even in our own lives when it happens. I'm not just making this up either. This is like coming out in the research over the last decade of why the Christian church is in in such decline, okay? Um, One of the groups that does a lot of research and social science on um, issues within uh, the church and nonprofits is called the Barna Group. It's like a Pew Research Center, but it's called the Barna Group. And so they released periodically a bunch of research and studies and statistics and that kind of thing. And one of the things that they released uh, a few years ago was the six reasons why young Christians are leaving the church. Okay, I'm going to show you five of the six. And what I want you to do is to see if you can determine what is the theme going on there. Yes, it's, it's insider-outsider, but what's driving that thing? What's behind all All of these reasons, people are losing, leaving the church. What is the heart issue, the motive, what's happening inside here in the hearts of Christians that are driving people away from the church, okay? So six reasons. Here's the first one. I'm just quoting. These are literally, I just copy-pasted these quotes right out. Um, The churches, churches demonize everything outside the church. Maybe that was a church environment you grew up in or you're familiar with, is pretty much if it was outside the church, it wasn't worthy. It couldn't be of value. Starts, if you you, uh, notice this, a lot of it has to do with um, the church building too. Um, there's a separation outside the church. Because if you look at the church as a community of people, um, not a place, like we say every week, it's really difficult to know exactly where the church starts and the church ends, if it's just a matter of people. No, no, no. This is a physical structure. This is a space. Anything outside of that holy space is demonized. Number two, Christians are too confident they know all The answers. This was especially in regards to science, that Christians are seen as anti-science. Number three, young people, young Christians, have made mistakes and feel judged in church because of them. Anybody ever felt judged before? There's a reason if you go to our website, infuse.church, and you scroll down, and kind of one of the things that we want you to know is if you step foot in this community of people— We're promising not to judge you. Why? Because that is one of the biggest reasons people don't come to church because immediately you have the sense that you are unworthy and everybody knows it and you're judged. Next reason, not being able to ask my most pressing life questions in church or having significant intellectual doubts about my faith. This is not a safe place to have conversations like this. Probably because of the first one, or the one just before it, because then you would be judged. Then people would know that maybe you're not the Christian. Maybe you don't have that green logo. You walk around like you have the green Starbucks logo on it, but what if inside of it, it's actually Java House? (gasps) You know? What if it's actually Dunn Brothers Coffee inside of that Starbucks cup? (gasps) What a betrayal. What a betrayal. Or this one. This is painful. Painfully true, unfortunately, I think. Next one. The church is like a country club, only for insiders. I'm not making this up. This is what people who are leaving the church en masse are saying as the reason they leave. The sad part about this is only one of the six had to do really anything with discipleship, learning, growth, that kind of thing. And and they just said that I, I wanted to grow a little more deeply, but i didn't feel like the church helped me do that like i went out into adult world with a childlike faith and I got crushed, which actually personally is really how I would describe my experiences. I went out into the adult world, and I'm like, my childhood faith isn't going to hold up to the crushing pressures and decisions and stresses and temptations that life throws your way, way as an adult. Only one of them had to do with an actual, like, tangible thing that should be happening in the church that wasn't. The rest of them sounded a lot like insider, outsider kind of a stuff, Right? right? And it's really sad, because I bet it's not just those young people. I bet a majority of you sitting in here today and watching online, you've had similar experiences. It's not just young people. It's adults, too. It's people who have been a part of the church. But maybe you're different. Maybe you didn't leave. You stuck with it. You got through it. You grinned and bared it, you know, kind of a thing but I bet for a lot of us, we can empathize with a lot of those same emotions. And what's also sad, I think, is none of those behaviors that those young people listed out, none of those qualities remind me of Jesus. Like, you don't even have to be a Christian to realize that. You can just open up one of the Gospels, one of the accounts of Jesus's life. There's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You could open them up and just read about Jesus. And I'm guessing after you read about who Jesus was and how he treated people and engaged with people, you would not look at him and say, wow, yeah, that's the kind of guy. He is all for being an insider. He's all for making it like a country club. He pushed out anyone that smelled weird, looked funny, did something different. Um, that, that's the kind of man Jesus was. No, that is not what you would get from an objective reading of Jesus' life and ministry. So did you catch the theme? In all of those things, what drives that insider-outsider behavior? Not entirely, not exclusively, but to me the thing that drove a lot of that is this word pride. Pride is like that line in the sand between if you're an insider... Or an outsider. Pride is that feeling you have walking around with, you know, that little green logo. Everybody knows you spent way too much on that coffee. But it feels good. And you tell yourself it's worth it. I, it might be. Okay? It might be. It's pride. What does pride do? Pride gives us the sense of superiority. Pride gives the sense of self-righteousness. That we are better than others. It gives us a sense of more control than possibly we actually have or that we have the right to um, have more control over a situation than we actually do. It gives us a sense, pride does, that you get to have what you want to have when you want to have it because you deserve it. You ever felt like Christians have that problem sometimes? That they have it all figured out? What's unfortunate is pride is also one of the reasons that most people leave and never return. It's where the judgment comes from. It's where the overconfidence comes from. It's where that that idea of this isn't a place to ask questions. You should just agree, conform, become uniform, or leave. Because let's be honest, that's a little bit of the country club mentality, right? Right? There's no space to share doubts or questions. You're either in or you're out. Pride creates that insider-outsider divide. And pride has plagued religions for forever. And that may be understandable in some sense, but pride shouldn't be present in Christianity. There's just really no room for it, especially if Christianity is all about Christ who is Jesus, who really was pretty far from having a lot of pride. A thousand years ago, just as the church was getting going, okay, um, a few dozen or so years into the existence of the church, um, these problems started coming up. Pride started to rear its head and tried to take control and push agendas and, uh, you know, as, as soon as there was, you know, um, um, you know, leadership and roles and power to be had within the church, it started to come out. We're going to talk much more about it in the next two weeks. It's going to be uh, hopefully insightful, but also a little mind-blowing for you. Um, but the, the church had these problems, too. Um, And there's a lot of examples that we could pull from, but one in particular, we've talked about it before, but it is so important that I want to bring it up again and again and again and again until honestly you're tired of hearing it because then I'm guessing you're going to remember it because this is such a big moment in the church's history. It's really been a defining moment for, for thousands of years now, some people kind of put it under the rug and don't pay attention to it, but it really is a powerful, crazy moment. It's documented in the, in the book or the account of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, um, which was written by Luke, who wrote Luke. He was a doctor. He wrote the account of Jesus' life. They called it Luke. And he also wrote the account of, like, how the church got started, and they call that Acts, okay? And so um, they had a debate, a very heated debate, as we 'll read, going on um, it within the church, essentially, there's some people who said, "You know what? Christianity started from Judaism. Jesus was a Jew right we got the old testament that 's the Jewish scriptures plus or minus." And then you got Jesus, and Jesus kicked off Christianity, right? He was the fulfillment of the Jewish uh, laws and prophecies and uh, the Messiah, the chosen one, and that's Jesus. And then it started Christianity, okay? And so this agreement that started in the church was, if you want to be a Christian, you first have to be a Jew. Which means you have to adhere to all the Old Testament laws, And for men, that meant a little surgery, not a fun surgery either, mildly inconvenient surgery. We call it circumcision. Now, if you were a Jewish kid, that would be done at birth, right? And for those in our culture today, it's also done something at birth. But for people who are transitioning from not being Jewish or Christian at all and becoming Christian— For them to say, oh, you have to undergo this little bit of surgery to become a Christian, well, let's be honest, that's asking a lot, okay? But there was debate, serious debate, over what to do. And out of this, we see pride rear its head. So Acts chapter 15 is where we are, Um, starting in verse 1, and here's how it goes. Certain people— Okay, now before we even go past certain people, I want to clarify who these certain people are because it doesn't say here, but because of context in the book of Acts and history and all that, we know who the certain people are. It's a group called the Judaizers, okay? So it's a group of people who said, if you want to become Christian, you have to conform to our Jewish ways of life first, There's no way if, and, or, but's around it. You must do this. Otherwise, you cannot be saved. Okay? That's what it says. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. You will not make it. Which seems dramatic here, is easy to write off in this moment. But let's be honest, in the church today, things like this happen a lot right? If you want to be saved, you have to do all of these things. There's some things that are spoken and some of them are actually very valid, but then there's a lot of unspoken things, right? I mean, have you ever watched the movie Footloose? Okay. David danced, but for some reason in church history, we thought dancing was really, really bad. Like, stop it. Like, you're going to go to the bad place. If you keep dancing like you do and moving those hips like they don't lie. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Right. I, would, I just started about to dance up here and then I stopped myself. So should all be grateful. Um, you know what I mean? We've done that. And we continue to do that today. The The hot button issues change. Okay. But Christians are right there willing, especially if you give them a microphone, to yell and scream what the rest of the world needs to do to be saved. And for me as an agnostic, I often sat there as I'm getting yelled at or told what I need to do to become saved when I was trying to figure out my faith. I just, I kind of wanted in the middle of it to kind of raise my hand and just be like, do you even care about me? or it's just this whole thing about you and making you happy and doing what you think is right? Because I'm not sure in the midst of this, I feel very cared for. I feel ashamed. I feel guilty. I feel like an outsider. I certainly don't feel invited in. Why? Because I think people were trying to save people first from a heart of pride and law and legalism than they were through how Jesus saved people. And that was through relationship and love and compassion. So people, back to the story. Judaizers are teaching this led to a heated debate that 's if you go on to the next verse it led to a heated debate within the church. you had paul and you had, or you had peter there and and um, some other key uh, key leaders, Paul and Barnabas, and they're sitting there and, and they had a heated argument and debate with them, okay? So they said, we got to go figure this out. So they all went to Jerusalem where all the apostles, the people who had been in, with Jesus or had seen Jesus, and the elders, the other leaders within the church could assemble and they could figure this whole thing out. But what was hard to recognize is the impact of pride, which is what we need to do. And the reality that what pride does is pride pushes, pride pushes this. It doesn't invite. It's not open-handed. It pushes. It pushes people. It pushes people away. It pushes people towards. It does not tend to extend a hand of inv- invitation. And I just want to clarify, this is not the version of pride that you, you know, like I take pride in my work or I'm proud of you or something. This is superiority pride. This kind of pride just almost always pushes. Push, 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 push. You have to meet this bar. You have to do this. You have to have all of life figured out. You have to check the right boxes. But unfortunately, and fortunately, the church has fallen short on this topic, but Jesus didn't. Because Jesus hung out with, and invited those who the church has since done a great job of pushing out. He invited in. And it's not just the church world. Let's be honest. We do this. I do this. Don't mean to necessarily. But when I you know, do a little internal examination, I'm like, you know what? I, I was pushing away in that moment. I wasn't inviting in. Why? Because I looked down on my neighbor And I, in my opinion, didn't feel like they were meeting my expectations. And in response, I didn't invite them in. I pushed them away. We do that, don't we? They don't meet our standard. They don't meet our expectations. We push away. So the entire church got together. Back to the story. They debated figuring out how to deal with this situation. A lot of debate and discussion and, and uh, Pharisees, if you remember those guys, some of those Pharisees became Christians and then so they stood up and they were like, yeah, they got to become Jewish too. And, and you're like, are you doing that because you care about these people? Or are you doing that because you are, are bitter about all the things that you've done in the past and you feel like they have to conform and go through all of those trials and tribulations and steps to, to get to where you are? You know what I mean? Like, it, it wasn't from a place of love and embrace, And so in the midst of this chaos, when they came together, Peter stood up. Remember Peter? He was the one who denied knowing Jesus. He was also the one. He he always spoke first, thought later, that kind of a guy, okay? But Jesus kind of said, you know what, Peter? You got to take care of things. And he kind of put Peter in charge of a lot of things. Peter stood up. Everybody got quiet. He said, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles, the non-Christians, would hear and non-Jews, um, or specifically, excuse me, the Gentiles were non-Jewish Christians. Okay, they didn't go the Jewish route to get to Jesus. They would hear the word of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us also. In other words, God has reached out to the non-Jewish people to tell them about Jesus. And if God's doing it, we should do it too. We should do it too. He did not he did not discriminate. God didn't. God did not discriminate between us and them. He didn't have a line between us and them. For he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? In other words, you're expecting the, Jesus, the, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, to do something you don't even do well. You don't even own your own shortfalls. You're not even perfect. Some of you, you may not even got circumcised, yet you're more than willing to expect that of others. You're, you're more than willing to claim the, mile, the moral high ground and judge people from it. And, and we do that too, right? Maybe not always externally, but we do it internally. We judge people. Who benefits from a moment like this? A moment when you expect others to do something and be something that you yourself aren't even doing or being. No one, no one benefits from that. Because that's what pride does. Pride, I can't, I, I thought about it, maybe you have a better idea, but I couldn't think of a situation when I'm like, you know what, pride, that's a good thing in this moment. You know, it's really gonna help. That's not what pride, pride does. No, Peter said, no, 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 no. We believe that it is through grace, a gift freely given, that our Lord Jesus, that we are saved just as they are. There's no bar you have to meet. Jesus just gives it to you if you have faith and trust in who he is. You don't have to be good enough because you're never going to be good enough. But that's what love does, isn't it? Love makes up for the gap. Love bridges the insiders and the outsiders. Love makes a pathway for people to come together. I mean, imagine, think about your marriage. How well does your marriage or dating life go when you act like the superior being? It doesn't go. Let me tell you something about God. If you want to be prideful and you want to push God away, he will respect that. Because that's what pride does. Pride pushes us inside towards ourselves, right? We wall up ourselves against other. Pride pushes us in and God and others out. And God says, you know what? I'll respect that. If you want to push me out, I respect that. I don't agree with it. It's not what I'd want, but if that's what you want, I will do that. Peter stood up and said, you know what? We're not going to let pride win out the day here. Because if Jesus gives this to us by grace, a gift freely given, why are we making it difficult for others then? It is my judgment, this is this huge verse, so massive, my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Yet, and I know this may push some sensitivities a little bit. Yet we expect people to come from the outside of the church inside, and, and we say, you know what, first of all, this isn't going to work out if you don't agree with everything this says and understand it. And then we're going to have some rituals, and we're going to have some behaviors, and we're going to say some things and do some things in the church that you're not even going to understand, but, but you should. You know, we're going to take communion. I'm going to stand up here. We're going to take communion. We're going to drink the blood and eat the body of Christ. And you're like, I'm sorry, what are we doing now? You could see how if you're an outsider, that would seem, I don't know, difficult. But yet Christians, we stand up here like it's everyday thing. Well, for some of us it is because we grew up in it and it's very comfortable. But for those on the outside, it comes across as an, uh, um, an expectation that is difficult to bear and we don't realize it. But sometimes we just think we got it all so good and so right that everybody on the outside should come in and be like, wow, that's what I've been missing this whole time. Thank you. Now I got it. It's like it doesn't work like that. We can, sometimes without realizing it, make it difficult for those outside the church to come in. So what are you saying, Taylor? We shouldn't do communion? No, 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 no. No. But we can do it in a way that doesn't make it difficult for those who are turning to God. Say, Taylor, well, this is a, you know, you guys have this upbeat service. You got band and music. And why do we do that? Why do we do that? this. It's not easier. It'd be a lot easier to just find a single organist and play those hymns. It would be. But for today's generation, for the next generation of followers, the potential followers in the world, they don't recognize organ music as their jam anymore. I do. I'm actually a big fan of organ music. You You pull out a hymn book and I'll be there right with you. A mighty fortress to our God. I will be singing it from the choir, okay? But that's me. But it's not about me. I don't want it to be about me. So we'll sing some more upbeat songs. Some songs that you come in, you're like, you know what? I don't quite get what they're singing about. I don't get this whole Jesus guy. I don't get all the thing. You know, we're, you know, Jesus walking on water, all that stuff that you're singing about. I don't fully get that, but I like the music, so I'll stick around. I'll stick around. And then maybe one day, if you stick around long enough, things start to click. And you start to get to know a God who is perfect who could have had a lot of pride and expected everybody to meet God's bar, which he does, but said, you know what? You're never going to meet this. And you continue to fall short. And instead of abandoning you, I'm going to reach out to you. I'm going to come to earth. I'm going to walk amongst you, teach you, love you, and die for you because I love you. Because that's what love does. Love doesn't let pride separate the insiders and the outsiders. Love reaches out in humility. Love says, it's not about me. Love takes pride out of there and puts humility right in there. and said it's not about me, it's about you. That's why Paul and Timothy, in one of their letters to the church in Philippi, said this, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. Some of you know this verse if you grew up in church. But with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Huh. There's not a lot of room for pride in that. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also is in Jesus Christ. If you need a model for it, they're saying, look to Jesus. Have, have that attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ. Because how do we know Christ had this attitude? Because he who existed in God did not equ- consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself out. He could have just stayed like God and stayed away from humanity, but instead he didn't. He emptied himself by taking the form of a bond service, a servant. He took the image and form of a servant and gave his life for others. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross for others. When you give your life for something... I don't think anybody ever looks at you and says, you know what, that was a prideful, arrogant person right there. No, they say, that person paid an ultimate sacrifice for something. Now, we may disagree, some of us in this room, on why Jesus died. For what? You may not agree that he gave his life as ransom for all of us because he loves you. You may not be there yet, I get it. But for those of us who do, we are, as Paul says, to model ourselves after that. We should let that image, that model, fill us and lead us into how we work with this world. And my friends, I am so grateful for this church. Because I know you may not think about it this way, but this is a fairly humble, we don't have a humble group of people, we don't have a lot of pride problems here. I think there's a couple reasons for it. One is because we say, like, on the front of our website, you know, this is a church for imperfect people. And so generally the perfect people don't think this is the place for them. And I get that because they're perfect and we're not, okay? That's part of it. But one of the other reasons I think so is because um, in terms of worldly success, we don't have a lot. Do you ever think about that as a church? We don't have a building. We don't have a lot of money got a trailer got some equipment Got this table right here that's nice but from worldly success point of view we don't have a lot and we give a lot but the world really doesn't celebrate that so much as they celebrate those who have a lot right? and we because we don't have a lot tend to have to work a lot harder right Some of you get here almost every single week, 7.30 a.m. to unload three and a half tons of equipment, set it up, and tear it all back down again every single week. We have to be much more creative. We don't have spaces in which we can have classes and groups, and it just makes life so much more difficult. We don't even have a place for staff people to even meet together and connect. You know, we have to meet in homes and all that kind of stuff, and that's a pain. But you know what? I think it's also kept us humble and pretty grateful for all we have. We don't get to walk around puffing our chest out like, hey, that's where I go to church. Because people are like, that's a school. Well, yeah, I know, but we, it's, church is not a building or a place. place. You know what I mean? It just doesn't have the coolness to it. And it's kept us humble. And I don't think that's a bad thing. So I hope one day when we get to have a facility here in Tiffin, because now actually, friends, we do have a facility up in Cedar Rapids. And that's been kind of nice because now we have an office and it's convenient. But what happens? is we tend to then say, oh, we're on the inside and you're on the outside. Until you come inside, you are not as worthy as those on the inside, right? Let's meet life with humility. Let's meet our relationships with humility. And especially if we consider ourselves followers of Christ, we should meet the world as he met the world, as a servant, as a sacrifice, as someone who loves deeply, who reached out to the outsider. Really, Jesus didn't even so much look at that. He just looked at humanity and said, you are so worth it to God, I'm gonna come and be with you. And just invite. What did Jesus do all the time? Hey, follow me. He invited people. Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. Be with me, hang out with me, learn from me. I wanna spend time with you. I don't condemn you. Be with me. And I will give my life to you as a ransom for all that you've done wrong, all your sin. All the moments you've missed the mark and fell short of the love of God, loving God and loving your neighbor and loving yourself. All those times you fall short, I will forgive that. My friends, that makes an irresistible community of followers. That makes the church irresistible. How can you resist that kind of love forever? Let's walk away from the parts of the church that make us resistible, that the parts of the church that aren't really the church, and be the part of the church, Jesus, that is irresistible. If you would, bow your heads, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord. This is a difficult topic. Pride is difficult. It's difficult to see. It's difficult to understand. Um, Sometimes, especially when we talk about the church and how we uh, exist in it and and love in it um, and work within the world, it's difficult to do that and and to figure that all out and to understand that. So this message could hit us in a lot of different ways. For some of us, we maybe still have our defenses up because we, we felt like, you know, maybe felt a little called out, for some of us, we, we feel like, oh my gosh, thank you. I wish somebody would have said that. And so now we're starting to said that sooner rather. And 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 boy, you're hitting the nail on the head. And so if, if that's us, say, we gotta kind of watch our pride a little bit there so we don't get too prideful. Lord, help us and draw us wherever we are, wherever this message is hitting us, to at least walk out these doors and be a group of people, community of people, that bridge the gap, that cross over that line of insider and outsider. Effectively, Lord, that we would learn to love like you have loved us. Lord, help us to follow you as the model for how we treat others, how we, be, how we together become and are the church. The church is the body of Christ, this body, your body, on earth. It is a physical manifestation of Jesus on earth. And so Lord, help us to be that. Help us to be that servant, that sacrificial, loving presence in the world. Help our pride to be broken, crushed, and fall apart so that what's left is love and vulnerability trust and grace as you have given it to us. That the world would know this church body by how we love irresistibly our community, our family, our friends, our co-workers, and the world. Because that's how you loved us first. Lord, help that big ask become possible in our lives. In your name I pray. Amen.